0: going to be looking at chapters 38 and 39 today. Again, go to Psalms and turn to the left and there you'll find Job. There's a relatively obscure word in the English language. I know it was new to me. The word is maudic. Anybody here know maudic? Okay, we're all in the same basket here. It means to answer a question with a question. In the absurdist play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Tom Stoppard writes about two minor characters in the play, uh, in Hamlet, who are off stage having an existential discussion. At one point, they become bored, and they're waiting for their next scene. So they begin to play the question game, where they compete to answer a question with a question, try and string these along. Rosencrantz starts by asking, what's the matter with you today? When? What? Are you deaf? Am I dead? Yes or no? Is there a choice? Is there a God? And it goes on and on like that for pages. The point Stoppard is making is how absurd Mautic conversations are. Thus far in our study in the book of Job, Job has been asking God for answers. As a matter of fact, at points we have seen he's demanded God come and give an account And when Yahweh finally comes and speaks, he comes asking question after question after question, forming a long maudic soliloquy. Look with me at chapter 38, verse one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you understand. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who or who shut the sea with doors? When it burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds, its garment, a thick darkness, its swaddling band and prescribed its limits and set bars and doors and said, this far you shall come and no further. And here you, your your proud waves shall be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like the clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the earth or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you have the have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare. If you know all this, we'll pause there. God goes on and on like this. In my teens and 20s, I, I was kind of like a golf nut. I, I got bit by the proverbial golf bug and I was golfing all the time. In my teens and 20s, any time after school or on vacations, I was golfing Saturdays, Sundays, but my favorite time to golf was Mondays. It was caddy day, and so a lot of the uh, golf course was empty, and I loved to play when no one was around. And I and I remember distinctly this one Monday I went. I think I was in college, and there was nobody on the course, and and I was on the the, the second uh, hole, and it was a long par five, and and beginning on the first hole, the, the, the clouds started coming in. And I thought I'd get a couple holes in, but it came in quickly. The sky actually turned like a funny green color. It was, it was a serious storm. I knew this was going to be a serious storm, and I got about halfway down the, the second hole when the lightning and the thunder started. And, and I, I just left my golf clubs in the middle of the fairway and went under a tree. I know you're not supposed to do that, but you feel safe. Okay, You don't feel safe out in the middle of this storm. And there was tons of lightning. And it was a fast-moving storm, but it was a violent storm. And it just sticks out in my mind. I was terrified. Do you know that a bolt of lightning is the single most powerful thing on Earth? That it comes to Earth at the speed of 270,000 miles per hour. That, that it, though only an inch or two thick, that it heats the air around the bolt to 158,000 degrees. You cannot control it. You cannot question lightning. You can't defy lightning. If you defy it, you die. We've come to the climax of the book of Job. And God steps onto the scene as a violent storm. It says whirlwind there. It's a violent storm filled with thunder and lightning. That's how God manifests himself to us. That's how God the Father manifests himself physically on earth. We see that in the garden with the wind and the whirlwind when he came, when he was walking. We see that at Mount Sinai with the peals of thunder and lightning on top. We see that in the book of Revelation. That's how God reveals himself there. You remember in chapter 4, you have that those wonderful concentric circles of people um, that are centered on the throne of God. And it says, from the throne of God came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And storms with lightning and thunder that are violent are scary. I don't care who you are. Or where you are. They're scary. But what's really surprising about how God manifests himself. The all-powerful, omni-in-everything-magnitude God. After listening to Job's irreverent, arrogant statements and questioning. God starts out by telling Job, I love you. That's how God starts out. That's how he he begins. In many other languages like Russian, uh, German, I know, Japanese, and I'm sure those of you who know other languages like this, I'm sure you know that there are different words and different endings you use when you're talking to different people. So people that you don't know or, or our distant acquaintances, you will use a different word or a different ending on a word to show that, that you, it, the, the proper respect. And then as you get into family relations, it's a different word or a different ending altogether to show that there's this intimacy. It's embedded in the language. Well Hebrew has that here. It's not apparent in English, but the name of God himself in verse one, you see the capital LORD. That's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. That's the relational name that God gave himself, that God revealed, chooses to reveal to those whom he loves. Through 37 chapters, God is referred to as El Shaddai. God the Almighty, God the Powerful. That's how he's referred to. And then right here it begins and he says, Yahweh. When God comes to speak to Job, he comes offering this intimate, personal name. A name that conveys security, care, concern, kindness, Faithfulness, a name that conveys intimacy and steadfast love. That's the name that he comes with. Before God says anything to Job, he wants him to know I'm here for you. I love you. I'm never leaving you because I love you. And that has to be, brothers and sisters, the foundation. That all of us have to understand, no matter what circumstance God puts you in, you have to know this. You have to know that God loves you. No matter what hard truths he speaks to you, you have to hear, I love you. No matter what, what idols he's unearthing in your life, you have to know that he loves you. No matter what suffering you're enduring, have endured, or will endure, you have to begin with the foundation that God loves you. And that's how he's approaching Job. And that I love you climaxes in the revelation of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Showing once and for all the love of God. How he, instead of us, sacrificially takes... Our sin upon himself. Taking the punishment of death that we deserve. Dying so that we may live. Dying so that we may have a relationship with this God the Father. I think that's what Paul is describing in Colossians 1. He writes, once you were alienated from God. Didn't have a relationship. In fact, he writes, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you, he writes, by Christ's physical body through his death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from all accusation. And our reconciled relationship with the Father is not a distant personal one. It's not a distant personal, an impersonal one. It's an intimate relationship, and Paul goes so far as to call it in Romans and Galatians an abba type relationship, that, using that Aramaic term and drawing all that that connotes this intimate dad like relationship, which is so juxtaposed to how he is he is seen as this. Terrible, fearful storm, he's still Abadad. And that's what God wants Job to know deep down that though he comes in this terrible storm, he is still Yahweh. The covenant keeping, steadfast loving, never leaving God. You see, that understanding has to be there, brothers and sisters. Before any hard thing is said in any relationship, let me repeat that, before any hard thing is said in any relationship, that other person has to know, I'm here forever. I'm not leaving you. I love you. Mark Dever has a saying that is really helpful. He says, I hug hard so I can speak hard. That's good. He uses that in his church. Hug hard. In other words, show, show the people that you love them. Show each other that you love them. Hug each other hard so that when it comes time to speak a hard truth into that life, they know you love them. And that's what God is doing here with Job. He makes sure that Job hears, I love you, because he's about to say, for four straight chapters. I love you, Job, but listen up. I love you, Job, but listen up. Job's been asking, even demanding two things consistently. Explanation and vindication. Explanation and vindication from God. He wants God to come and explain his suffering. We know, chapters 1 and 2, why Job has no idea. And Job is saying... Why, God? Tell me why. Tell me why this is happening in my life. Job's also been asking and even demanding for vindication from God, too. In other words, God, prove to everyone I'm innocent. Okay, tell me why, but also I want the world to know that what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have been saying is untrue, that I haven't sinned in some big way. Vindicate me. You tell them. They're not listening to me. And these are the demands we place on God from time to time. Maybe they're not spoken like this, but maybe they're in your heart. Maybe this is these are some of the things you say to God. Come here and tell me why. You know, we kind of put our 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 spiritual arms across our chest and, and tap our our Toes and go. You come here and tell me why, God. This is this is a terrible situation. Come here, tell me. Explain to me. You know all. Sometimes we cross our spiritual arms across our chest and tap our toe and, and say, "You had better let the world know that that I didn't do this thing that I'm accused of." <coughs> You better vindicate me. I've given my life to you. You owe me. And God says to you and me, like he says to Job, Blake, I love you. But listen up. You don't know who you're speaking to. You have some things to learn. And he does this by making, taking Job on a meudic throughout the heavens in the seas in the stars in the animals in chapters 38 and 39. Question after question. And at first, it seems like God, God's answer is a huge disappointment. Have you ever read through Job and you get to what God says and you read it through and you go, that's totally unsatisfying. Job is asking my questions, and you're not answering it. What's going on here? If you just answer Job's question, I'll be satisfied. Good or bad, I'll be satisfied. But as we listen a little closer, I think God is saying three things here. I think God is saying three things. And the first thing he's saying is, fear me. Fear me. The Gallery of Modern Art in Glasgow, Scotland, hosted a series of exhibitions in 2009 called Made in God's Image. Among the many things the exhibit included was an open Bible with a a container of pens and an invitation to what they wrote down as writing yourself. If you feel excluded from the Bible, please write your way back in. I know, I see the faces. Yeah, there's a lot of things we could say about that, okay? But chiefly, it makes us the subject of the Bible and the object the Bible itself bending it in any way we can. But what is worth noting about this is the venomous responses that were written down in the Bible. People wrote all over the Bible pages angry and lewd comments, One person wrote, This is sexist pish, so disregard it all. Another wrote on the first page of Genesis, I am bi, female, and proud. I want no God who is disappointed in me. Others have taken the opportunity to alter verses, including Genesis 1-1, to prove that everything about the Bible and God is man-made. Again, many things we could say about this. But at the very least... We can say, this puts on display no fear of God. No fear of God whatsoever. That's the natural condition we're born into, brothers and sisters. No fear of God. If you did not have the Spirit of God within you, you would be writing those things in the Bible. In the book of Romans, Paul takes the first three chapters to prove this point, that everyone... Is born that way, and you know it—the famous litany of depravity in Romans 3:10 through 18 starts with the statement, "There is no one righteous, no not one." You know, your lips are open, grave; your 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 throat is an open grave; your lips are full of poison. Um, and it ends with this: He ends his three chapter theological push with these words there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the conclusion. We sin because we have no fear of God. That's why we sin. We're able to write those things in the Bible because we have no fear of God. Job makes his sinful, arm-crossing, toe-tapping demands. Why? Because he doesn't have a proper fear of God. In chapter 27, Job has the audacity to say to God, listen to this. I vow by the living God who has taken away my rights, by the Almighty who has embittered my soul, I will never concede that you are right. I will defend my integrity until the end. Can you imagine saying that to God? Job is able to say those things, and we make similar demands, brothers and sisters. Because we don't have a proper fear of God. Because our God is way too small. So God begins to work on our hearts and Job's hearts right from the beginning in in chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who shut the sea up behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise from the east? Surely you know. God is in essence saying, do you have any idea who you're speaking to? Do you realize who I am? Do you understand how vastly out of place your comments are? One lens. It's a good lens, but, but one lens that you can you can look to how mature you are. Your maturity in Christ is through your fear of God. It's not the lens, but it's a good lens. Christian philosopher Gerald Van wrote this. To grow in wisdom and love is not to lose all fear of God. It is to change our fear of God it is to pass from the servile fear of the slave the fear of punishment to the love loving reverence of a son fearing to offend his father and then in the end to the purely selfless fear of the lover the fear of hurting the one you love I'd say that's a great progress to target. I mean, we all come into this world with the first fear, you know, the servile, the slave fear, You know, the, the fear, the, the, the no fear that, that allows us to write in the Bible to an immature believer fear. We do things out of fear of punishment to the mature fear who obeys because he wants to. He wants to please. He wants to to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. And that journey takes time, brothers and sisters. It just takes time. And And it takes what it takes is a proper understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for you. You will never get to that third position until you really understand what Christ has done for you. That he's given you, in the storm that terrifies you, this one small area that you're safe. And that's in Christ. When you get that, your fear starts aligning correctly. I love how John Piper explains this in The Pleasures of God. He writes this, Suppose you were exploring an unknown glacier in Greenland in the dead of winter. Just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that you might be blown completely off this cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover in the ice a little cleft, a hiding place where you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges across the distant glaciers. He writes this, not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. Read that again. Not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. And so it is with God, he writes. The proper fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. Because of what Christ has done for us, by, by taking the wrath of God on and by standing out in that storm and taking the lightning strike, we have no fear or life-threatening issue to deal with. But God is still a scary storm. We're not terrified that we're going to lose our life anymore, but God is still a scary storm. We have a safe place in the middle of it. That's the proper alignment of fear. From the storm comes another whisper, and that is, trust me. Trust me. Fear me, but trust me. In chapter 39, verse 1, God switches to telling Job about the animal kingdom. He writes this, Do you know when the wild goat gives birth? Have you watched as the deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery? Verse 19. Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Verse 26. Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? The point God is speaking to is about the different realms. Again, he's taking us to the earth and then the sea and the sky now and the universe. It's that he wants Job to understand that the universe has infinite complexity, infinite detail. And yet, God is in control of it all. Infinite detail. Yet God is in control of it all, down to the smallest detail. And earlier in 39, he says, Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Everything is in God's control. And if everything is in God's control, he's saying to Job, If everything is in my control, don't you think your life is in my control? Don't you think your suffering is in my control? Don't you think I care about you, Job, who I made in the in my own image? Don't you think I care about you? Jesus said it this way when he was walking on the earth, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. There's the control. And then he followed it up and said, Even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth many sparrows. Whatever the explanation is for Job's suffering, God is saying, It's not out of my control. God loves you more than you could ever know. So trust me, Job. Derek Thomas writes this, If I had my way, I would take the warmth of the Spanish summer, shift it northwards to cover the British Isles. But that would seriously upset some other part of the world, and I must trust in the wisdom of God that made it this way. What in Belfast seems as though we get more rain than others, there must be some purpose to it. He writes, I must simply trust him or immigrate. And that's the choice. you got to trust him. Or not trust him. That's what God is saying to us today. Simply trust me. I don't know your situation right now. I know some of your situations, but I don't know the vast number of your situations. But he's saying, whatever the situation is, trust me. Is it finances? Trust me. The shaky job. Trust me. What about your children? What about my children? Trust me. What about my health? Trust me. I'm in control of everything down to the smallest detail. Because, and this leads to the final whisper, God is saying, listen, Job, You want to know everything, but you're just too small. And so he says, humble yourself before me. A few days after Blaise Pascal's death in 1662, a servant happened to find, hidden in the lining of his jacket above his heart, a piece of parchment covered with his own writings. For eight years, Pascal kept close to his heart his own testimony And his encounter that that precluded it with God. He wrote this. In the year of grace 1654. On Monday 23rd of November. Feast of Saint Clement. From about half past 10 in the evening. Until half past 12. Fire. God of Abraham. God of Isaac. God of Jacob. Not of philosophers or scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ. Pascal apparently had an encounter with God. And it humbled him for the rest of his life. Huge intellect down to the ground. That's the experience throughout scripture, isn't it? No matter who it is. Strong in intellect, strong in, in body, constitution. Paul was knocked off the horse and blinded. Isaiah, whose benediction I uh, used as a benediction last, last week, you know, seeing God enthroned, smoke, seraphim, cherubim, what was his response? I'm a man of unclean lips. And, that's, and now it's Job's turn. See, Job made the mistake of so many of us. We compare ourselves to other men when we should be comparing ourselves to God. And when we do that, we become proud. We start thinking a bit too high about ourselves. And the genesis of that is a forgetfulness of the grandness and magnitude of God. Elihu told us, introducing God, your God is too small. And that's so true. I don't care who you are in this room, your God is too small. My God is too small. He's spending a week in this, way too small. And so God says, compare yourself to me, Job. Can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades and loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you regulate the earth, Job? King David might have actually been meditating on these very scriptures. I don't know, but he might have. When he penned in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what's man that you care about him? Who are we? Brothers and sisters, there's a proper response to all of this, and that is humility. J.I. Packer wrote, Christians grow greater by becoming smaller. That's true. Christians grow greater by becoming smaller. And these closing chapters of Job are a shrinking process for all of us. We should be reading them over and over and over and over again. You struggle with pride? Stay in these four chapters. When you begin to question God's wisdom for your life, read these chapters. When you begin to become angry at your circumstances, read these chapters. When you begin to think culture is out of control, read these chapters. When you start thinking of yourself too highly, read these chapters. When you think you're right and God is wrong, read these chapters. Philip Yancey wrote in his blog, I marvel at the seemingly infinite expanse of space and the smallness of our earth by comparison. The sheer scale is enough to make you dizzy. Scientists now believe that if you had unlimited vision... You could hold a sewing needle at arm's length and look through the needle, the, the, the hole at the end of the needle, and you would see 10,000 galaxies. Move it an inch to the left, and you'd see 10,000 galaxies more. An inch to the right, 10,000 more galaxies. And each of those galaxies has 100 to 200 billion stars in them. Job got a close-up lesson on how puny we humans are compared to God, and it silenced all his doubts, all his complaints. He writes, I've never experienced anything like the sufferings Job endured, but whenever I have my own doubts, I try to remember that perspective, the Hubble telescope perspective of God. And Job finally gets this Hubble telescope perspective. Understanding of who God is. And I envision Job in chapter 40, verses 2 and 3, saying with a soft, cracking voice maybe, I don't know if you do this with Scripture, I do this with Scripture, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. I spoke twice. I'll say no more. Job is humbled. But God's not done. That's next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for these words. We are so such a proud people. We do not understand how grand you are, how huge you are, how awesome and terrifying, how powerful. And I pray, Lord, for myself and for my people that you will begin to show us this magnitude that it will create in us a proper fear and a proper trust. And a proper humility. We want that for ourselves. It was hard for Job to go through this, I'm sure. But we ask you to take us through this through your word. We want to be the people, the kind of people that you create by your sheer awesomeness. In Jesus' name. Amen.